Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Tuesday, November 26th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, we're all here on pins and needles waiting for the first results of holiday 2019. So we thought while we're doing that, we would warm up your data analysis brain functionality um, with some guests that are focused on retail data. We are really excited to welcome to the Jason and Scott show. Uh, both of these folks come from NPD. Uh, we have Jeremy Allen. He is the group president of Checkout. And Patty Altman, she is the SVP client and business development of Checkout. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. It's an honor to be with you guys today. Yes, thank you. Uh, we are thrilled to have both of you, and uh, sort of a tradition on the show, we always like to kick things off by having the guests share a little bit about their background. So, um, uh, Jeremy, why don't, why don't you get us started? Can you tell us how you came to MPD? Uh, absolutely. So, I've been with MPD for about the past four years. My anniversary is uh, coming up in December of this year, and I lead our checkout business, which we'll get into a lot more in this show, uh, but end, checkout is MPD's startup business. We use receipts to measure markets and how consumers shop. Um, we're very, very excited about this business. It's been a, a great uh, investment uh, and opportunity for us and for our clients. Um, prior to doing uh, this and joining MPD, I spent about five years with Nielsen, which is also in the measurement space. I led the marketing effectiveness practice there, helped uh, clients improve their advertising reach and resonance. And before that, I grew up uh, in consulting. So I spent about 15 long years uh, at McKinsey & Company. Wow, 15 years at McKinsey is actually like 83 years in, in people years. Yeah, and I have all the gray hairs to prove it. <laughs> and uh, Patty, can you tell us how you got to MPD? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks as well uh, for, for having me on the, the show this morning. Um, so I've been at M MPD for two years, and I work on Jeremy's team. I lead the commercial side of our business. Uh, the mission of our team is to make sure that our clients use checkout buyer analytics in the most effective way and typically to drive big strategic decisions, uncover opportunities, and all within the, the omni-channel space. Prior to MPD, I was at Ipsos for seven years, and I had a variety of leadership positions there, everything from leading a global communication uh, program uh, to custom research and, and brand innovation and renovation. Uh, but the key probably to, to, to why I'm here at MPD now is my time that I spent at IRI. Um, I was at IRI for 12 years, and I was in the consumer panel division working with longitudinal panels, very similar to what we do with Checkout. And it was there that I learned the ins and outs of how to best leverage bioanalytics and really the power of that, that information. So, you know, it's funny, but it feels like coming to MPD is full circle because a lot of those studies that I did in the CPG space years ago, um, things like brand switchings, new loss retains, you name it, um, they're the core of what we do uh, at checkout and how we drive value at our clients. That's awesome. So is it fair to say that you guys basically took the best of Nielsen and IRI and brought it? Uh, to make an even better offering at checkout? That's exactly right. So what's interesting is that panel uh, analytics, what that basically means is you're tracking the same consumers spending over time. It's been a mainstay in the CBG space. So 
there's a product that Nielsen and IRI collaborate on called the HomeScan Panel. And that's where many of the CPG brands, the bread and butter analytics come out of that. In our space, we call it general merchandise uh, and food service, the industries that MPD tracks, there hasn't been a longitudinal panel before checkout. So we're bringing those exact same disciplines that have existed for decades in CPG marketing to general merchandise. And it's, uh, it's been a huge opportunity and our clients are, are thrilled, uh, thrilled with that innovation. Very cool. And just to make sure, uh, so Jason and I are pretty familiar, but just to make sure listeners are tracking us, there's there's kind of two companies in this space. There's Nielsen and NPD. Nielsen, um, they do a lot of data around CPGs, uh, and then you guys do the non-CPG stuff, which you're calling general merchandise. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? That's exactly right. So we track 24 industries, and it's basically... Uh, we track everything that you cannot eat or put on your body, so uh, meaning uh, personal products. So it's clothing, it's jewelry, it's beauty products, it's sporting goods. Uh, it's We also do food service, so restaurant operators, all of those things that you'd find in a Target or a Walmart that don't fall into the CPG category, we track. Very cool. And then, um, again, for listeners that aren't familiar with how, how this works, at general at NPD, and then you're working on a sub-project within there called Checkout. In the overall NPD, so you're in these 23 kind of non-CPG categories. Uh, I'll pick one of my favorites, which is automotive. Um, how does that work? How are you tracking uh, automotive data? Yeah, so if I just back up for a second, MPD has been in business for about 50 years, and we track these 24 industries, and we do it in two primary ways. So one is what we call uh, POS, which stands for point of sale. So uh, similar to a Nielsen or IRI, we take data from retailers, so all of their register receipt data. We aggregate that data, and we classify it into a standard hierarchy that we then use to measure product sales. Uh, with that, we can measure manufacturer brand share, we can measure retailer share, and it's really, we call it the data of record. So it's the standard by which companies measure their performance in our industries. So that is what MPD has been doing for 50 years. So it's retailer data aggregated, organized, and then given to the industry to measure performance. So that's one data set that MPD uses. The other one that we've used for a long time is consumer surveys. So uh, POS data that we get from retailers tells you what sold for how much it sold and how many units sold. The consumer data, we really go out and ask consumers what they bought and why they bought it, right? So it's the, we call it the why behind the buy. Checkout is a startup that gives us another way to measure what consumers do. Uh, the difference with checkout that we'll get into, as Patty mentioned, it's a panel. So uh, historically with our consumer data, we would ask trackers. We would ask the same questions, but of different people each month. With a panel, you're asking the same questions or getting the same information from the same people over time. And that's where the innovation comes in for us in these industries. Uh, that That is awesome. And I always like to talk about the sort of panel data as observed behavior, what, what we actually see customers do versus the survey data is more stated uh, behavior. It's what customers said they do, which may or may not perfectly accurately reflect what they actually did. 100% correct. And that's why we love receipts. So if I get into checkout for a minute, what's, what's interesting or different about checkout is exactly what you said. We would ask consumers what they bought, where they bought it, why they bought it. Receipts, we don't have to ask any questions, and it's factual. So what checkout does is we have an app called Receipt Pal. It's available in the iOS store on an Android. Consumer downloads that app, and we ask them to take pictures of all of their receipts for all of their purchases. We also ask them to give us access to their e-receipts. So the core of checkout is getting a consumer to give us information on everything they've purchased in the form of a receipt. 
we then organize that data in the same way we do our point of sale data in the same uh, taxonomies, the same hierarchies. It's classified the exact same way. And with that, we can measure what people are buying through their receipts. Perfect. And I don't want to uh, belabor the methodology so much, but it, it's super helpful because it lets us understand uh, where there's any potential um, data biases and just like what the what the capabilities of the the data set that's driving the insight. Um, and so so you're um, you have a consumer app that's enticing people to take pictures of receipts. And to me, part of the cool part that you just implied is you're not just getting in store behavior or just online behavior as as some other panels are doing. Um, you are actually seeing the same person across their their shopping habits on Amazon or Walmart.com and in a, a, a Target store, or a Costco store. That's exactly right. And when Patty used the term omni-channel, that's exactly what we mean by omni-channel. We're really interested in trying to understand everything a consumer buys, where they buy it from a channel perspective and from a retailer perspective and from a brand perspective. And historically, measurement has been channel-centric, right? So you'd have an e-commerce measurement service, which we used to provide within checkout. You'd have a brick-and-mortar measurement service, but what was missing there was the interaction across channels, and it's exactly what you just said. By getting purchases across all those different channels, retailers, and brands, we get a full picture of how a consumer is making decisions about what they'll spend and where they'll spend it. Awesome. And then um, I feel like you you solved two other traditional data collection problems we have. You you don't care how many different devices the customer used to shop, right? Because you're not using cookies. You're you're getting the receipt. So you see the same customer on their, their laptop and iPad, for example. Correct. Uh, and uh, you don't care what the method of payment is, right? So if they pay with cash or a credit card, doesn't, doesn't matter because they get a receipt in either case and you see that receipt. That's exactly right. And for some of the industries that we track, tra- uh, that we track, cash is extremely important. So if you think about food service and people buying a meal at McDonald's, cash is the dominant method of purchase. And if we didn't track uh, the receipts, we'd miss all those cash purchases. So that's one of the advantages over uh, credit cards, for example, uh, some sources that use credit card data to track spending. Perfect. So then um, is there some unintended bias in your in your panel? Like, because you're, it's people that are willing to download and use this app, to, I'm, it seems reasonable that they might skew more digital and therefore shop online more than, than middle America or anything like that. Like, do you guys feel like there is some, some specific biases that you try to account for or, or do I have well, that wrong? Yeah, there's always going to be a bias in any panel, uh, depending on the data collection, depending on what's being asked. But what we do with uh, with checkout is we use both weighting and projections just to make sure that we are eliminating as much of that bias as possible. So when we look at results from our panel, it is indeed best reflective of the average shopper for that category, for that brand, for that retailer. Perfect. And then... Uh... I, I, as I understand it, there's about 100,000 people in the panel right now, which sounds like a huge amount, but there's like 240 million households in the U.S. Um, I'm guessing that you do some fancy math to mm-hmm. somehow uh, uh, make the, the 100,000 <laughs> represent the, all the households or all the consumers. Yes, fancy math is exactly what we apply to it. Um, yeah, the, we, we have uh, marketing research and scientists here who are the best in the industry, uh, you know, well-known people who have been doing this for many years. And uh, we have both a weighting system to make sure who's in our panel is represented appropriately and then projection systems to make sure they can project out to what the total U.S. Uh, population would behave. So we take that 100,000 and make it represent the total U.S. population. 
Perfect. And if I can just add that 100,000, by early next year, it'll be 150,000. So we continue to invest and expand the panel because we believe we can accurately represent the population with 100,000. But in many of our industries, sample size is critical. So the more panelists we have, the more industries, categories, brands, and products we can track. Uh, so we're always trying to invest and expand the panel for that reason. Cool. Um, so that's really helpful. And uh, thanks for going through the Jason gauntlet of data questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you guys get this from clients all the time, so it's probably not not foreign to you. Um, a lot of times when when I'm analyzing data, I find the real value is in kind of the surprises, both, both positive and negative, if you will. Um, what are some of the most interesting surprises that you guys have seen from this this project so far? So what, what was really interesting for me, one of the very first things that we did when we uh, got the first uh, long enough term data set to be able to observe consumer behaviors is we broke people up based on how much they spend online. So imagine a portion of the population that spends less than 25% of their spend online versus another portion of the population which are heavily engaged in e-commerce that spend more than 75% of their spend online. And what we're really trying to find out is do retail preferences change, and you would think they obviously would, but do they change and how do they change based on how much of a spend, uh, how much spend people do online and how engaged they are with e-commerce. And what was interesting is people that are primarily brick and mortar, the number one retailer, as you might expect, was Walmart. People that are primarily online shoppers, the number one retailer, as you might expect, was Amazon. What was fascinating, though, was to look at how the other retail preferences changed over time. And what we were really trying to understand was, were the big brick and mortar retailers able, through their dot-com offerings, to maintain their fair share of the market as people moved online? And for the most part, they weren't, right? And a big question that we're working with our retail clients on is how do I present a multi-channel, omni-channel offer to, to consumers so that whether they love coming into my store or whether they'd really rather stay home and shop online, they're choosing me as their retailer. And an interesting example was Best Buy. Best Buy has done a phenomenal job of using their store assets, using their dot-com uh, offering really making it friendly for consumers. And they actually do better with consumers as, the, as consumers shift from buying uh, tip, uh, predominantly in stores to predominantly online. BestBuy.com picks up more than their fair share of that heavy online consumer cohort. So that was fascinating. And we use that as an example with our retail clients to say, hey, don't worry about Amazon as the behemoth. You can win. You can create a compelling offer for consumers. Do what you do well. Use all of your assets and you can actually win with consumers as they make that shift online. You mentioned automotive earlier. That's a, it's a really good example for automotive clients where online penetration is still low. But as they're thinking about consumers moving more online for automotive purchases, those retailers are really trying to figure out how do we win from the very beginning with an omni-channel, multi-channel offering for those consumers. Very cool. Um, any other uh, insights from so it's this population that's like using less than twenty five percent? So I guess they're doing more more Walmart. Uh, any other interesting like wh what is that type of a person? Is it a lower income cohort, or is it certain parts of the country, or what? How would you think about that person? Um, there's definitely it skews uh, lower income and more middle America, as you would expect, right? So we're still seeing, as uh, and you guys know this way better than we do, we still see that internet uh, and e-commerce shopping does skew toward the population centers. It skews toward the coasts. Um, that's where you have the leading edge shoppers that are much more comfortable with technology. You have a much higher presence of uh, internet availability, although it's becoming ubiquitous now 
Um, so it's middle of the country and lower income that does skew toward that lower online engagement cohort. Okay. Um, so you you mentioned something that was interesting. Uh, you talked about a retailer like Best Buy sort of, out, I'll call it out punching their weight in omni-channel, um, which is fascinating to me. I have a premise that in our industry a lot, we we um, we work based on these um, urban legends. And, you know, we, we often don't have data. And so like by word of mouth, like, oh, uh, omni-channel spender shoppers, tend to spend more than in-store shoppers. And that, that sounded good when some CEO said it to the, the shareholders. And then it, it became uh, sort of a de facto fact in our industry. And then the data sets like yours come up and we get to either confirm or debunk some of those urban legends. Uh, so, A, I am, I am specific. I am curious on that specific example. Is your data showing that omni-channel spenders, tent shoppers that use both online and in-store tend to be more valuable for retailers or, or uh, is that an urban legend? I think it depends on the category. So a lot of times what we do is we'll segment consumers based on spending into a heavy uh, spending group in a category, medium or light. Um, the heavier spenders do tend to be people that have uh, more multi-channel engagement. So I would say in general, and it sounds like you were hoping that I would debunk this one, I would say in general, our data would tend to agree with that premise but it really depends upon the category. In fairness, I'm probably out of business if you debunk that. that so. <laughs> so I'm fine. Okay, I thought you wanted to be a, me to be a contrarian, and I can't be on that point. I yeah, have yeah, to no, no. If you jumped in and said any money you, you spend on digital is a total waste of funds, I'm probably in big trouble. <laughs> Fair so, enough. So thank God I dodged, I, I dodged that bullet. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but were there any other sort of surprises to you in terms of omni-channel behavior or like are there any retailers like that you wouldn't have expected that are doing you know really well at capturing their share any categories that tend to skew more omni-channel so i in terms of categories that skew i you know what i what i will point out is the automotive example that i pointed out earlier i would say there's a couple of categories like automotive and home improvement where they have been able to to benefit from watching other categories and other retailers as consumers shifted online and those retailers didn't embrace it and really take advantage of all the assets that they had to make sure that they were getting their fair share, they're doing a better job out of the gate with an omni-channel offer. So if you think about uh, an advance, for example, the buy online, pick up in store, which is a unique um, capability that you have if you have a physical store location. If you're changing the muffler on your car, it's pretty urgent for you to get it quickly, right? You may not be able to wait until the next day, but to be able to do the shopping, figure out what part you need, be able to look up a model number online, select exactly what you need, and then go drive over and pick it up to be able to complete the repair. Our auto retailers found that that was a very compelling value proposition. So figuring out what you do well and where you can win and where your stores actually are a benefit to you is is something that I've really been impressed with with, uh, with some of the auto retailers we've observed. And home improvement similar is much earlier uh, many people thought, you know, God, you're never going to buy lumber online. Well, you're right, but there's a huge assortment of items that are in a Home Depot or a Lowe's. Many of them are very friendly for e-commerce. And being able how to, f to to figure out that buy online, pick up in store, the multi-channel offer, they can really learn from you know best-in-class retailers like Target that have done a really good job figuring out how to appeal to the consumer with all the different channels and features that they offer. Uh, that's terrific. And I, I did want to clarify one thing because um, 
I feel like different different companies uh, use categories def- definitions slightly differently. When you say automotive, do you mean actual vehicle sales, or do you mean like automotive aftermarket parts and and accessories? Thanks for clarifying. Only automotive uh, aftermarket parts and accessories. We do not track vehicle sales. Perfect. Um, so then on the Target example, which is particularly interesting to me, uh, because I, uh, I I feel like we've seen this really interesting behavior. We have the Walmarts of the world that, in my mind, are really trying to go toe-to-toe with Amazon. And, and you know, Amazon's got 800 million items online. Walmart's, you know, rapidly expanding their offering and, you know, trying to match same-day shipping and all of that. I feel like when they zigged, Target actually zagged and said, hey, you know what? We're not going to be the everything store. We're going to carry a curated assortment. Um, and that assortment's going to live in our stores. And we're going to use our stores much more centrally than Walmart does, for example. So, you know, they acquired shipped and they they ship a significant portion of all their e-commerce orders from the back of their stores. And they do same-day delivery from the store inventory. So, in my mind, when I look at those two companies, I go, well, you know, Walmart's really playing for assortment, price, and convenience, and Target is really playing for um, sort of curation and omni-channel. Um, do, does that show up in your data that, like, you know, that omni-channel is more relevant to Target than Walmart? So I agree completely with the stories that you just laid out on those two companies, and our data does support that at least as of right now, uh, Target.com is doing better than Walmart.com in a fair share sense with people that are heavier online consumers. Uh, So the facts would support that. And and I, you know, I love about the shipped example that you brought up. It's very consistent with the Target brand, right? So, you know, when I was growing up and I guess I'm old, but people will call Target Target, right? But if you think about the ship delivery service, you have these uh, part-time, in many cases, um, working moms or, or work from home moms that are coming into your home. They're unpacking your groceries. They feel like they're a part of the family. It's a very personalized up-brand experience. So the way they've done it is very consistent with their brand heritage, in my opinion. Very cool. It, um, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. You've already mentioned them uh, a little bit there. Um, one of the things I always am, am curious about is when you when you kind of look at the macro numbers, you see that that Amazon's about half of online sales. So, so my first question uh, related to Amazon is is does that track with what you guys are seeing? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting in question. Um, our data shows that about forty three percent of total online sales move through Amazon, so somewhat uh, less than what you just quoted. But the thing that we really have to note is that there's just a ton of variation across industries. So, for example, if you look at something like softline industries, like apparel, about twenty percent move through Amazon as opposed to toys, which could approach seventy percent. And think about the differences between those two industries. Toys, it's often for a specific occasion. It's often around a holiday. It's often for a gift-giving purchase. So that combination of what the, the product is for or the gift or the occasion is for, as much as the desire to have a specific online experience, tends to drive the reliance on Amazon versus the, the, the rest of the online uh, space. Yeah. And you guys, so if I kind of think of this giant pie of e-commerce you guys are seeing, what, what percent do you think you see of the whole pie if you're not doing CPG and apparel? We do do apparel. We don't do CPG. And I, I don't know what the share. I honestly don't know the answer yeah. to that. Okay. Uh, I thought there was something like if you couldn't put on your body or something like that. 
Oh yeah, no per- personal products. So uh, ah, okay, probably was a bad bad example Sweat. that I laid out. I was thinking sweaters, not not a uh, mascara. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, mascara uh, we track. It's more the lotions yeah. and deodorants that yeah. we don't. Okay, wow, it's complicated. Uh, it is complicated. <laughs> um, so. So, you know, you, when you read the headlines and, and Jason, and I go out there and talk to a lot of retailers uh, and I've spoken at NPD shows about Amazon, you, you do get this feeling that they're on this kind of like, you know, they're, they're unassailable and, and uh, you know, unbeatable. Um, does the data indicate any kind of tips that you would give to retailers or brands of, of how to kind of quote unquote beat Amazon or, or to at least kind of slow down their, their headway? So I, um, so Scott, I think it's a lot of what we have been talking about. I, I think, and, and we have to be careful, right? Because all these retailers are friends of ours, um, and we want everyone to play nicely. Um, but the, the having a physical store where you can engage with consumers on a different level and be there for them and build that relationship and greet them in person and form an impression of a brand that's a connection with a person is a real advantage. Um, being able to ship from your store, being able to let somebody pick things up the same day if it's available. There are some advantages that a physical brick and mortar network give you as a retailer that I think went unexploited, right? I, I look at headlines from, and you'll remember these from 10 or 20 years ago that talked about the death of the store, right? And there was probably a credible point of view that was put forward at some point that people would never go into stores anymore. Um, but there are many stores, many banners that are doing great because they've realized that there are some things that consumers want from a store. And we would just encourage all of our retailers that have that physical presence to take advantage of that, figure out what they can do uniquely to connect to a consumer when they come into the store to strengthen the connection to the brand. And that's powerful. Yeah. And just to add to what Jeremy was saying, it's really all about the, it's really all about the consumer, not about the channel. So the clients or the retail manufacturers who are seen really operating at, at the highest capacity are those that always keep the consumer central to the story. So whether it's an experience of walking into a, a brick and mortar store or a physical location, or if it's purchasing at their direct to consumer, or is it, it purchasing a curated site, the message, the feel, the communication is all holistic and fits together. So it's a shopping, it's a consumer experience and not a channel experience. Uh, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I'm always curious, like, I'm, I guess I'm less interested in which retailers are doing well against Amazon. Are there any of the categories that you track where, where you feel like Amazon isn't as dominant, so there's more online white space? So Patty mentioned just statistically apparel and the soft line categories, um, especially when you get to fashion, is one where um, we see a lot of players other than Amazon do well, right? There are a lot of dot-com, pure play, e-commerce uh, retailers that have brands that speak to something and speak to consumers and stand for something. And those do really well, right? I think that's a place where um, we would all acknowledge that there are a lot of other players in that space. And it's not one that Amazon seems to be dominating or moving toward dominance. Yeah, I, no, that makes sense. I, um, It's funny, I get asked all the time, like, like uh, what categories can we get in uh, where Amazon isn't already winning. And, and I have to come up with a different answer every year because Amazon keeps, <laughs> keeps uh, conquesting more categories. Uh, but like I used to say live plants um, and now they're shipping live Christmas trees this year. So <laughs> I, I feel like I can't win on that. Um, I, I'm actually regretting I didn't ask you a question earlier when I was in the data gauntlet. So I want to revisit that. Uh, the, I'm assuming that, or I know for a fact that both retailers and brands are customer of your data 
Um, but I'm guessing how they use it is slightly different. Like, can you share a, sort of a brief example of, of, you know, what the typical use case is for a retailer and what they might do differently as a result of your data and then what the typical use case is for a product manufacturer? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and we work with a, a ton of different clients who are really using checkout in a multitude of ways, whether they're a retailer or whether they're a brand. Um, so, you know, in, in, and across both, quite honestly, all of them are always interested in the basic core metrics of, of how consumers shop. We have a, a product here called Essentials, which in any other company would be things like a purchase summary, a purchase trend, a shopping basket. And both from a retailer and a man, manufacturer perspective, they need this information and they use this information to understand the core foundation of the health of their brand. So things like penetration, what percent of the population is, is buying my product or buying rate? How much do they purchase over the course of the year? Do I have a, a penetration strategy or do I have a buying rate strategy? And how does that differ from my competition? That's always critical. Um, one thing that I, or one study that we find that actually bridges the gap between retailers and manufacturers is something called a leakage tree. Um, and basically what a leakage tree does is it looks from a consumer, from a retailer lens, um, what trips a retailer is missing or, or not converting for a specific category. And from there, we can identify that opportunity and how much dollars are being missed because that trip is going to the competitor and who is that competitor. Um, in addition, uh, what we can do as a next step is to help them activate or identify strategies in which to, to convert that opportunity. Why I say it's also a great manufacturer play as well is, you know, I mentioned earlier, I've been in the CPG world many, many years, and category management functions were just the bread and butter of how manufacturers worked with many retailers. And the crux of that was always leakage reports. So while that was pretty commonplace in the CPG world, the reality is it's less commonplace here. So we're finding manufacturers who are really successful with retailers are using strategies like leakage trees to help them understand how to improve their business. And in that in, in turn, of course, also helps create a better relationship and also opportunities for the manufacturer with that retailer. Awesome. Very cool. Um, and in general, is checkout a tool that like, is it a turnkey tool that a client would use themselves or is it, is it sort of a data set and what the client buys from, from you is insight from a person that's using that data? Yeah, and that's a really great question. And we really think that's the value proposition about checkout. We right-size the offer to where or what stage a manufacturer or retailer might be. So, for example, we have some really sophisticated clients who either came from the CPG world and they use have used this before. They understand these metrics and, and how to use them to a really effective level. And we have a self-serve platform for those clients where they can go in and pull those measures that I talked about earlier that really are the essentials or the core or the backbone of, uh, of understanding business. Then we have the other side of the equation where there usually are pretty complex issues that need to be answered. Big dollars are on the line. Uh, we have a team of experts here who understand the categories that we deal with, both from a retailer or manufacturer point of view, understand the issues that they're being challenged with and how the best way we could line up what the client is looking to do versus how checkout can assist and can drive solutions. The other thing that's really unique about uh, us at MPD is that because we have those POS and consumer assets, 
we can tell a complete picture. So we can start from a, from a, from a sales side on the POS, why sales might be up or down if that's the challenge a client is facing. We could then look at the consumer data to understand some occasion based or some other information around how people might have their attitudes towards, um, towards a specific product, brand, or retailer. And then we really bring it home with the checkout data. And that checkout data completely focused on helping to understand what strategies you need to employ that are going to motivate the shopper or the consumer that you want to attract. So again, it can be self-serve or it can be a very curated experience where we are hand, uh, lockstep with you um, from start to finish on the solution and what you can do with that solution. Cool. I like that. This is the first time I've heard the term leakage tree. <laughs> I feel like I yeah. want to go, go cut down the forest of leakage trees. <laughs> and that, that notion of, of leakage is really important because if you think about the fundamentally what it means is the retailer has been successful at bringing someone into their store and yet they're choosing to leave their store to buy somewhere else, right? So being able to figure out what was I missing from this category, from a category perspective or a brand perspective or a price perspective, what didn't I have that made that consumer who I already did the hard work to get them into my store, mm -hmm. what am I missing so that they had to go to one of my competitors to make that purchase? That's powerful. And we do that across all the categories to show retailers where they're leaking and why. Yeah, what, one of the topics I'm kind of fascinated with is what, what we call Mulligan, right? So we're definitely seeing problems at malls, uh, obviously, at this point. Um, uh, Macy's just recently announced their reporting, and, and they kind of blamed uh, their problems on the fact that a lot of the other anchor tenants at malls, like like Sears, are closing. Um, the Some of the data I've seen, I can't remember where this comes from, but it, they're showing you know, not only are mall visits down, but the intra-mall shop visits are down too. So people are kind of very transactionally going to the mall and going to the Apple store and getting some AirPods and then leaving the mall. And they're not, they're not kind of, you know, ringing the register at six stores that they used to. Do you guys have any um, kind of mall level insights that, that you can talk about? Uh, it's a great question and probably something we should study, but we haven't. So I will put that on the list of things that we should look at. Awesome. Cool. But we would have a solution for it. So if a client did come to us and said they wanted to understand that, we have something called the sequencing study, which we can understand over a course of a day if someone's shopping experience, if they purchase at Macy's what they did next, and whether it was brick and mortar, or did they then go online and purchase something. So as long as they're physically purchasing something during the course of the, t of the day, we could help identify where they had to go out from that initial purchase to get other items. And again, it could be online. It could be in-store. Okay. Uh, so kind of a little bit of a pivot here. Uh, and this is something that Jason and I have been pondering for literally, I think, five years now. So uh, here on the show, we talk a lot about the data out there um, at a macro level of how fast is e-commerce growing. Um, so generally, you have Comscore, and I think it's the Department of Commerce, but it's through the Census Bureau. Uh, they say that online sales are growing 15%, and they kind of put something like, depending on whose survey you look at, 13 to 15% of sales are online. Um, but then, you know, on the show, we always do these new shows and we have Amazon is over 25%, Walmart's over 30%. This is just their online sales. Target over 50%, Shopify, even like eBay is kind of relatively flat. Um, so it feels like either someone is losing tremendous share in there that, that we don't see or the 15% number is wrong. Um, do you guys have any any insight into which of those things is possible? Or maybe there's something I haven't even imagined going on here. 
So I don't know what's driving it, but I can say that your the Department of Commerce number of 15% is consistent with our numbers. We see growth from 13 to 15%, 16%. Quarter on quarter, that's something we publish uh, in a study that we do called Retail Trends. That's very consistent with the numbers that we're seeing. So when you see outlying uh, examples of people with uh, double-digit growth, 40%, 50% growth, I, you know, I guess I would be with you that they must be taking share from somewhere, but I, I also don't know where that is coming from. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe another way to ask this. My my sense is that some of these brick and mortar guys that are just really not continuing to keep their share. So uh, I'll pick on like a JC because they've been in the news, but and not asking you specifically. But I guess one counterexample is: Are there examples of omni-channel going really poorly, uh, and, and is that more the norm than it going really well? Like like the Best Buy example. Um, I think it, I think it is a bit by default, right? So if you don't pay attention to it and you don't build an omni-channel offering, you don't have a dot-com presence that appeals to your consumers and you don't invest in it, you know, it kind of has to go poorly because you're up against people that are doing it really, really well, right? They know how to curate assortment online in a different way. They know how to use the uh, ability to have an endless shelf online. Um, they know how to do targeted marketing to bring people onto their site. So if you're not doing that, your dot-com presence can fail to take off. And I think you raise a great example. We probably do have many retail examples where it's not a place where they've invested, maybe because they had to focus in other areas and it hasn't taken off and they probably are uh, not capturing their fair share. Um, which is, of course, always sad. Um, and it's, I guess it's going to have to remain a mystery uh, why we have this disparity of numbers. My own theory, um, we talked at the very beginning sort of, surveys versus observed behavior the the u.s department of commerce data which which many data providers index their data to essentially is a survey they send a letter to a retailer and say what percentage of your sales were online uh and in many cases they've been sending that letter to the same guy for 40 years and that's a store guy <laughs> um and so you know the answer to that survey doesn't necessarily like tie directly to the erp system of every retailer um, be that as it may, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you have all this like juicy real data from customers. Um, I have to imagine that there's some kind of common mistakes that you you see repeated over and over again that you try to evangelize with customers. Like are, are there any recurring themes that you tend to talk about that you can share with our audience? Yeah, and it goes back, I think, to a little bit of what we spoke about before. Uh, really, the, the the shopper or the or the or the the consumer has to be at the center of every single strategy. Um, so it's not enough to just say, "Oh, we need a direct to consumer or we need a, a brand.com website to help supplement uh, our sales." It has to be something meaningful and fit to what the consumer expects or the shopper expects about the experience and what they know about the brand. Um, so it really has to all fit together. Uh, while we know that some of our clients have moved away from having a separate e-com or separate digital teams, we still see this being a separate function when really it should be just one holistic approach. Um, it should not be separated. So where we see clients winning more often than not is where the consumer experience is addressed holistically and it's not siloed in different channels. Um, where we don't see it happening is where it's either an afterthought or it's not a connected uh, experience for the shopper. Yeah, we certainly uh, would observe the same. It's kind of sad that we're still having this conversation in mm, in uh, uh, 2019. But in my experience, retailers have gotten a lot better at about talking about having the customer at the center and and have, not having silos. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the the organization and the metrics that they pay attention to behind behind the scenes are are perfectly integrated. What um so this is kind of so we've talked a lot about kind of what I would call it kind of near window of what the data is telling you. Let, let's kind of project it forward, um, and I'll kind of leave it to you guys to to figure that out. Uh, one one way we see a lot of people talk about this is they'll look at kind of the millennial and Gen Zs and kind of see that generation and then project their behavior forward. But what's the data essentially telling you guys about the future of retail? That's a broad question, future of retail. <laughs> you can um, take that, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Patty. Um, well, so I'll, I'll tell you one thing that we talk about with our clients. Um, people um, and younger generations are choosing to spend more on experiences, and I'm sure you guys have done many podcasts on, on the growth of experience spending, but experience and services are getting an increasing share of spend, and our clients that sell goods are trying to figure out how to leverage and capitalize on that. So what are the similar experience brands uh, or retailers or uh, experiences that their consumers that have an affinity for their brand are also drawn to. So it could be acquisitions, it could be co-promotions, it could be uh, trying to tie in and merchandise their products where they wouldn't have before. Um, but that's an increasing concern for our clients is that consumers, younger consumers especially, are moving more and more away from buying stuff as the central feature of where they'd like to spend their money um, and, and getting experiences and memories out of it. Related to that is, is the notion of committed consumption, which I think we may have coined that term. But if you look at um, any, any consumer's discretionary spending, um, they have an increasing share of that spending every month that's committed before their first paycheck comes in. And things like streaming services, things like your cable bill, things like your cell phone bill, things like video game memberships, you know, there are all the different streaming services that have been in the news lately that have launched. Consumers are spending more and more of their money before it even comes in, and this, this notion of committed consumption. So that's crowding out discretionary uh, spend on goods, and that's a real challenge for our clients as well. So figuring out, you know, these subscription models are interesting for many traditional uh, e-commerce retailers or brick-and-mortar retailers, and you have subscription services coming up there. Will my consumers be willing to dedicate a portion of my spend or of their spend or of their income every month to me? And there are um, several big retail brands um, like Nordstrom, that have a service where you can spend a certain amount, 100 bucks a month for four outfits. They'll send it to your door. You can return the ones you don't like, but they're trying to figure out how they can get in on this uh, notion of a consumer saying, okay, every month you're going to get a portion of my spend. And if you can't win with that, you're going to lose because you'll get crowded out. And I think that's been fascinating, and we're trying to work with our clients to see how they can work through that. That, that is super fascinating. A, a trend we talk a lot about on the show, um, we call auto replenishment. Um, and so you... You could imagine, like, if you're, you know, a general merchant with 100,000 SKUs on the shelf and you're seeing a higher and higher percentage of, of consumption shift to this committed consumption, like, can you make paper towels and toilet paper committed as a consumption by, you know, uh, providing some service where those things just show up and the customer doesn't have to shop for them again? So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, like, instead of, fighting against that trend if we if we see more tr more retailers try to embrace that trend do you feel like that could be successful in in a broader range of categories than we're seeing today i think we're seeing ex it expand and we're seeing trial i don't know that we've seen proof i mean the the again you guys are the experts in the e-commerce and amazon space but the statistics that you see on what people are willing to spend 
uh, or how they're willing to engage when they have Prime memberships, the amount of, of purchasing that they do and the frequency of that purchasing on Amazon with these auto replenishments and the number of boxes that are showing up on their door crowding out you know, trips to, uh, to, to other retailers where they may have bought the paper towels or the cleaning products, it's astonishing, right? It, it, the purchase frequency on Amazon dwarfs, I don't know if it's a factor of 10 to 1, but it's, okay. it's, a, it's a big multiple. Um, so I think Amazon certainly in, in that case has gotten it right. Uh, but I applaud our other clients that are trying to figure out how they can win uh, with that. Um, and some of the apparel manufacturers, I think, are, are really good examples there. Yeah, that's awesome. Along those lines, uh, Amazon made a pretty clever announcement this week. They they launched a new product called the Dash Shelf. Have you guys seen this? Um, it's a, I have not. It's So it's a a smart shelf that's designed for their B2B customers. So you'd put it in on your your office products uh, shelf or your pantry in your business. And it, it weighs the products that are on the shelf and automatically reorders when the, the shelf gets below a certain level of inventory. So they're essentially pushing automated inventory management out to all these small businesses for, you know, ordering, uh, you know, coffee and cleaning supplies for businesses, which if I'm a office Depot or, or uh, Staples or one of those companies, like that, that would be pretty scary because they're, you know, again, taking a bunch of that discretionary spend and, and shifting it to, to committed Amazon consumption. I love that. I had not heard of it. So thank you for telling me about it. And I love that idea. I have a, uh, you just kind of stirred up a question. The, uh, when you look at your data, can you tell if someone is a prime user or not? And, and can you, do you guys project and say, hey, we think there's this many prime users? Um, I don't have the projected answer, but yes, we can tell if someone is a prime user. As I mentioned before, we have access to e-commerce receipts. So in those receipts, they'll identify uh, if you're a prime member. So we can see that. What's interesting, and I've, I mentioned it before, the purchase frequency that we see among our users that are prime members is about 35 uh, purchases. Um, the average purchase that we see from other retailers is in the you know two to five range. So it's just massive. The engagement and loyalty that Amazon has been able to create with that Prime membership, which by the way, um, you know, we've looked at all the things you get with Prime. It really is a good value for consumers. And I think consumers recognize that. So it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but it's a brilliant thing that they've done in it. And we see it in our data in terms of the engagement that consumers get. And that, that 35 is over the course of a week, year? Uh, uh, over Jason. the course of a year. Yeah. Jason does that in a day at, at Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Scott's... really interesting too. Is their spend it, it t- typically is lower, but with that many purchases over thirty-five different occasions, it, it's you know close to two thousand on average per year. Yeah, that's, that's that's crazy. That's a huge like endemic advantage, um, and I'm assuming it's a mean because if it was a median, Scott's you know thousand Star Wars purchases a year <laughs> from Amazon would probably have a uh, a more skewing effect on the data. Um, yes, but, they would. That's an average. <laughs> but that's actually going to be a great place uh, to end it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time, uh, but if we've whet your appetite um, and you want to continue this conversation, you're welcome to hit us up on Twitter or leave us a question on our Facebook page. As always, we we really appreciate it if you jump on iTunes and give us that that five-star review. Uh, but Jeremy, Patty, it was a real uh, pleasure to talk to you today, and thanks for sharing some of the insights from the checkout. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Until next time, happy commercing. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 